Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post. And I'm guessing possibly, like me, you're still getting your head around the events of the past few days. The United Kingdom no longer has a functioning prime minister. Sri Lanka's prime minister is currently in hiding, while Sri Lankan taxpayers have taken control of the official residence. Australia has had its first face-to-face ministerial-level meeting with China after almost three years of frosty, if not deafening, silence. And as I speak to you, coverage continues of the funeral and ongoing international reaction over the assassination of Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. There's a lot to get your head around, and frankly, that's not the half of it. But you're about to hear a special two-part episode analysing those last two points. Today in Australia, headlines are screaming that China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi has issued a list of demands to Australia. You're going to hear from Professor James Lawrenson from the Australia-China Relations Institute about how that's not only an extreme interpretation of the Chinese language used, it also ignores what the change in Australian government really means. But right now, you're about to hear from our political economy editor for the South China Morning Post, Wendy Wu. I've got her back on the line to discuss the reaction in Beijing to the assassination of Shinzo Abe. She's got some great insights into the complexity of the legacy he leaves for Sino-Japanese relations and how it may affect the future. And before we get started, I should have mentioned this last week, so let me say this to you now. Please remember to check in on our 24-hour newsroom at scmp.com for the latest updates from across China and around the world. And with that, let's get Wendy Wu in Beijing on the line. Wendy, thank you once again for making time for me. Thanks for the invitation, Andy. I'm so glad to talk to you. Thank you, Wendy. Can I start with Beijing's reaction to the assassination of Shinzo Abe on Friday? A lot of media attention in Western media has been given to the various toxic responses to be found on China's social media. But there's a complexity to the relationship between Shinzo Abe and Xi Jinping that in some ways echoes the complexity of the China-Japan relationship. Can you tell us more about that, about this relationship between Shinzo Abe and Xi Jinping? China and uh, Japan relations has always been overshadowed by some historical issues, such as Japan's uh, uh, invasion of Chinese uh, during the Second World War II, and also the uh, territorial disputes in the East China Sea, and sometimes over the Taiwan issue, even in the past. So such the issues have often been the very painful and the major blocks of the two, of the two countries. And one uh, one Shinzo Abe was elected the prime minister during his first term, just uh, within just after twelve days after his premiership, uh, 
Abe made a trip to China, which was called by the appraised by the then Chinese leader uh, as the ice-breaking journey. So there was there were signs that uh, both countries are trying to get the relation back to normal. But Abe resigned shortly, and uh, in his uh, second term. Uh, from in his second term as the prime minister, uh, there is uh, increasing and intensive interactions between Abe and the Chinese leaders, including uh, including Premier Li Keqiang and the President Xi Jinping. Uh, 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 either it's in the uh, different uh, international platform or forum, or even there is a mutual mutual visit uh, between Chinese leaders. Um, I think that uh, a very high-profile visit by Abe was uh, to China was in uh, October 2018, just uh, five months after Premier Li Keqiang visit, after he was elected in the second term, and uh, the, the 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 two sides has tried to manage the bilateral relations, and China raised four points. Uh, proposals to fix the, the damaged uh, relations. And since then, the diplomatic and economic engagement has resumed a, a bit by bit. And it was then led, led to the Li Keqiang's visit to Japan in uh, May 2018. And that time, uh, both sides have signed a lot of uh, contracts, especially on the economic and the trade association. And um, five months later, Abe paid visit to China and was uh, hosted both by Li Keqiang and uh, Xi Jinping. And Xi Jinping even held a dinner with, with him and uh, they talked privately. Uh, and uh, it was at that time that it was just a high time of the trade war between China and the US. And Abe was reportedly, he made suggestions to President Xi Jinping about uh, trying to make direct talk with uh, then President Donald Trump tried to solve the problem, the trade problem. And uh, it was reported that Chinese leaders took this advice and uh, at least they, he listened to the advice and uh, there was sort of the breakthrough in the bilateral relations in the trade talks in the G20 meeting in Argentina later that year. That's quite fascinating. And of course, if you look at the economic history of Japan, the United States under Ronald Reagan launched a trade war on Japanese on Japanese businesses at the beginning of on Japanese manufacturers at the beginning of the 1980s. So it's quite interesting that Shinzo Abe passed on his passed on his advice to Xi Jinping about conceivably how to navigate this. And I mentioned those toxic social media posts that got recirculated from Chinese social media. But in the circles you move in, the government sources the analysts, the academics, what was the response you observed to the news of Shinzo Abe's murder? First, I want to say that in the government circles, the response to the assassination of the uh, Shinzo Abe was that uh, the government said that they were shocked by the assassination and they expressed their condolences to the passing of the Shinzo Abe. And from the foreign ministry, from the Premier Li Keqiang and uh, to, to the uh, President Xi Jinping, all of them said that uh, Shinzo Abe actually made 
positive contributions to the bilateral relationships, which we can tell from that they had around nine times of the meeting and the talks between Abe and the, and the Chinese president. And there were also other times that about uh, Abe's meeting with Premier Li Keqiang. Uh, between the two terms of the Shinzo Abe, Chinese, uh, China and uh, Japan relations were frozen again, tension again because of the Japan's nationalized of the territorial disputed territorial of the uh, Diaoyu Island or the Senkaku Island in Japanese. So during the second term of Shinzo Abe, the relations was was largely remained stable under him, especially in, in the previous years until the disruption due to the uh, pandemic. So I think that uh, we cannot say that Shinzo Abe reset the bilateral relations, but uh, it is largely stable under his term. And uh, I think that uh, his legacy will continue to affect all uh, the, the, the future bilateral relations. And when we talk about the complexity of Shinzo Abe's relationship with Beijing, on the one hand, Shinzo Abe forged deeper economic ties between the two nations, but he also pushed to have Japan's pacifist constitution changed so it could go to war overseas, so their military could go to war overseas. And also, once he was out of government, he became very hawkish with his comments about China and his stance on Taiwan and his stance on the defence of Taiwan. Do you think that changed the relationship between the two countries? I think it's uh, not to change the relations between the two countries. Uh, there is a still lack of the real meaningful trust between the two countries for quite long period of time. And I think that the relations are still in the stage of the trying to rebuild the uh, the, the trust and trying to find a common ground. And even now, with the, with the tensions over Taiwan, uh, the Taiwan issue, and uh, it, it's getting worse and worse, I don't think there is much um, brightful hopes that the relations are going to improve uh, over the, uh, uh, substantially. And about the, about the toxic comment on the internet in China, I think we also ignore that there are also some voices expressing the sympathy for his passing. And some netizens even report that in the initial days of the pandemic outbreak in Wuhan, Abe also suggested and uh, requested that his party members trying to donate some part of their salaries to China. So, And there are also voices in China saying that Abe, uh, despite of the ideological differences and its political differences, Abe is still realistic and pragmatic as a politician and he managed the uh, relations with China and its relations with China and its relations with uh, US uh, and trying to strike a balance between them, especially during the days when Donald Trump trying to distance uh, US from its Asian allies and st stuck to the American first. That is one factor which Abe trying to re improve the relations with China, I think. And there are some social media accounts, they even closed comments, even including some uh, usually nationalistic commentators. And I think that uh, it also expo exposed one thing. It is not just in China, but around the globe about the, the, the a sharp a division of opinions in a country and the rising nationalism in many in, in many parts of the world and uh, it is not all it is not just in china but uh, we also know that there is a division of opinion in china ever since the the pandemic the zero covid controls the policy and also on the how 
and on uh, Chinese residents' views on Donald Trump and even on the Ukraine crisis. So it's not just about Abe assassination. And also adding to that, it's always a complicated situation uh, when talking about the Japanese-China relations. It's a complexity that makes me most aware of my own limits of knowledge and reading in this area. But can I get you to speak about the future that Shinzo Abe has helped to build? Is it fair to say the biggest legacy he leaves for Sino-Japanese relations is his work to build the Quad into something more strategic beyond its initial beginnings at the sidelines of the G20? I think he is a major contributor to that. I think also, I think that uh, he, after the pandemic situation, um, he also announced a set of a massive government fund to reshore the supply chain back to Japan to reduce reliance on China on the supply chain. And he also joined the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And after Donald Trump withdrew from it, he led the revival of the CPTPP and uh, of the TPP, which has, has a new name about the comprehensive and progressive agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And this CPTPP has opened the door for China to join. He did not invite China to join, but China has sought, has formally issued application to become a member of it. And whether the, whether China will become a member or allowed to, to join it is another very difficult issue because of the tense relations with the Japan and with the Australia. And also Japan has joined the uh, Biden's version of uh, Indo-Pacific economic framework. So the, the bilateral relations between China and Japan is, is getting more and more complicated and bleak. How the Xinjiang Forced Labor Act is affecting China's cotton industry. There's a whole podcast episode in that alone. But, but can I take you back to this list that Wang Yi has supplied to Anthony Blinken detailing eight areas where the two nations can cooperate? There is definitely areas that both sides can cooperate as they are the largest two economies and their, their policy and their economy change will have a large spill over uh, to the region and to the, to, to, to the, to the global economy. Uh, there is no details revealed by has been unveiled by, by Beijing about what are the eight areas, but we can speculate it a bit. I think that there is a, such as how Beijing and U.S. can cooperate to to jointly uh, let the to jointly lead the global economic recovery and um, on the climate change and on the, even on how to cope with the loomy uh, energy and the food crisis due to the due to the war. And uh, there is also something that they can do on the trade side. And it's interesting you mentioned the trade angle because that's what you and I were talking about last week on this podcast, the suggestion that Joe Biden might make an announcement to lower tariffs. But Wendy, before you go, can I ask you one more question? It might seem a, a, a tad frivolous given the gravity of the subject we began with today. But can I ask you, has there been any response you've observed in either state media or from your sources about the news from the United Kingdom that Boris Johnson has stepped down as or stepping down as prime minister. 
<laughs> I think that uh, they are stick to the official line of that. Uh, they said that uh, they are just a moment and they won't comment on this because it's about the internal affairs of the of the United Kingdom. But looking ahead, uh, I saw from the state media citing some analysis. They are worried about the uh, outlook of the bilateral relations, and there are some concerns that maybe the next prime minister of the U- UK. Uh, will be more anti-China. So that is clearly a concern in Beijing about that. Wendy Wu, Political Economy Desk Editor for the South China Morning Post. Always great to speak with you. Thank you for your time. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Professor James Lawrenson is the Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology in Sydney. Professor Lawrence, and thank you for your time. Pleasure. We're talking to an international audience on this podcast, Professor, so I'll sidestep the headlines dominating Australia's media and begin by asking you to recap just why this meeting between Wang Yi and Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong at the G20 last week was so important, given the state of relations over the past three years. Yeah, well, the important point to note is that for the last three years, Australia has been an outlier in a region where plenty of countries have challenges in their China relations. But no other country um, had a complete breakdown of dialogue with China at the ministerial level. And secondly, uh, no other country has experienced the rage of trade disruption um, that that Australia has. So the last time we had a ministerial level meeting was back in November 2019. Um, So the fact that we've only just had a couple, we've had two in quick succession over the last month is surely significant. We had the defence ministers meeting last month and just last weekend we had a meeting of the foreign ministers. Now, there's still a long way to go, let's be clear. I mean, the leaders haven't spoken. Um, There's been no direct bilateral official visits. Um, The Australians that are detained in China are still detained. There's been no let up on the trade front. But the point is, is that it is still a a market shift from where we were at um, just two months ago. Now, I'm reminded that in 2004, Malaysia's then president, Mahathir Mohamad, stated Australia was too European and therefore could not join an East Asian diplomacy group. How much of a change of paradigm for Australia's relationship with Asia are we seeing with Penny Wong as foreign minister? And do you see a change in approach from Wang Yi and Beijing about how China competes with Australia in the Asian Pacific? Well, look, I'll just focus my comments on Australia. I mean, I'm, I'm an Australian academic. Um, so let me speak to pen, the point about Penny Wong. And this is a very significant point. In the lead up to the election, um, the then opposition Labor Party emphasised that there would be a lot of policy continuity um, between their approach and the previous government's approach. However, um, an area of difference was in the area of diplomacy. Um, the incoming foreign minister, Penny Wong, said she would restore diplomacy to centre stage. And she also had a long track record of emphasising that she would engage with the region, 
China, but in particular Southeast Asia, the countries of Southeast Asia, on their own terms. In other words, rather than just seeing them through the lens of US-China great power competition, which is where the previous government ended up. Um, she's also uh, singled out the, the Singaporean Prime Minister, for example, Lee Hsien Long, for special praise. And, and she said that he, she felt he had first-class insights into the way the region was travelling. So, yes, I, I do think this is an important um, change of framing in the way Australia, the Australian government, will look at the world. And interesting you talk about framing because uh, this morning the Australian media, and I see some elements of, of the, the broader international media, are uh, framing these various to-do lists issued by Wang Yi at the G20, both to America's Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and to Penny Wong, in Australia is being characterised as for demands of China being made to Australia. Now, you pointed out on Twitter, this is not the first time a list has been supplied to Australia from Beijing. The first was a list of 14 demands. But this latest list is four points to normalise relations and you take issue with this being characterised as demands. To quote your tweet, a bunch of fluent Chinese speakers I've spoken to say this is an extreme interpretation. Can you tell me more about that, please? Yeah, sure. So let's start with the 14 demands, so-called demands, um, which were a list handed by a Chinese embassy official back in November 2019. Those were quickly spun as, as the 14 demands. Um, now, since then, uh, including just uh, last month, uh, a few weeks ago, at, at uh, the new Chinese ambassador to Australia, explicitly disassociated himself from those 14, you know, demands or grievances or whatever you want to call them. So I think they were starting to lose their currency. Um, now, it was interesting to me that immediately after that event, you then had uh, roughly the same people in Australia now framing uh, the conversation as China having issued a new list of four demands. Now, uh, I, you know, this is a this is a diplomatic statement, and diplomatic statements from Australia, China, or the United States often deliberately contain ambiguity. So my point was that to call them demands um, is an extreme interpretation. If you want to make that interpretation, okay, but let's be clear that you are reaching for a very extreme interpretation. Um, I've since seen, for example, that plenty of China experts in Australia, including Richard McGregor at the Lowy Institute, Linda Jacobson at China Matters, have also said that it's not right um, to characterise this four-point list um, as a list of demands. I would characterise them as a list of proposed principles uh, that China would like to put to Australia to manage the relationship. Now, of course, those principles are in line with Beijing's objectives, of course. Uh, and Australia is free, Canberra is free to propose its own four principles, proposed principles to manage relations going forward. Um, so that's the point. And look, clearly, clearly, they are not preconditions because we've got the evidence in over the last six months since we've had a new government the new government hasn't walked back any policy positions of the former government and yet you have had a stabilization of the relationship and an improvement in the trajectory albeit it's only run so far at the moment so you put all that that together calling it a misrepresentation maybe strong language but that's in my view that's what that's what it is what did you take from this list of four things to do to normalise relations? What 
actually is being asked for? Well, look, in some ways, it's very, very simple. Let me just take the first one. So the first one is, is that the Chinese foreign minister said that uh, he would like uh, Australia should view China as a partner rather than an enemy, an adversary or, or a threat. Well, that's that is not remotely new. The Chinese foreign ministry has run that talking point for years. And in fact, This is where it also gets interesting. After the meeting between uh, Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, and the Australian foreign minister, Penny Wong, Penny Wong, in her statement, um, emphasised that um, Australia would continue its relationship with China under the banner of a comprehensive strategic partnership. Um, That's a a diplomatic phrase that we struck with China back in 2014. So you had Australia's foreign minister emphasising the partnership. That actually is not unusual. Even back in 2019 and into 2020, the former Morrison government also emphasised Australia's comprehensive strategic partnership with China. He stopped doing that in the last two years of his term. But the point is, is that this, what China is asking is clearly not a mile away from what the Australian government is comfortable engaging with China un, under the banner of. Um, so this, this is an example where I think it, it's pretty disingenuous to call that a demand when you've got Australia's own foreign minister emphasising the comprehensive strategic partnership that she sees as advancing Australia's interests. We're talking about framing. The discussion is dominated about China's trade sanctions on Australian caught lobsters, on timber, on, on wine. But it's often missed about the kind of sanctions that Australia put on China. Starting in about 2019, we had the, the exclusion of Huawei from the 5G networks. We've had a series of WTO cases brought by the Australian government against Chinese exports. Is there any, any way to try and is the word detente we're looking for here in the terms of trade sanctions or, or trade actions? Yeah, look, so just to be clear, um, the Australian government would be quick to say that there's no equivalence between what Australia has done with respect to foreign investment and anti-dumping actions on China versus what China did back in 2020. They, they would say China's actions were clearly um, motivated by a political purpose, um, where Australians' actions were motivated by issues like national security and, and genuine Australian business grievances over Chinese products being dumped in the Australian market. Now, of course, China would find it very hard to believe that justification levelled by the Australian government, but let me just put that that on on the record. The other thing I think that's important to note here is, again, it all comes back to history. So if we're just jumping into this from 2020, um, we miss a lot of this. When Australia and China struck the free trade agreement, this was groundbreaking back in, uh, it was enacted in December 2015, uh, there was a clear um, give and take involved. From the Australian perspective, the big gain, the big give up, the big the big offer that China made was to reduce tariffs on Australian exports, right? China did that. There's no argument about that. Those tariffs have fallen. Now, what the Australian government promised was first and foremost um, was to put Chinese investors on a, um, a the same level as American investors, Japanese investors, Korean investors, and so on. Um, And the second thing the Australian government promised to do, in fact, way back in 2005, it promised to extend China what they call under WTO terminology, market economy status. 
and you had, that's significant because you had the Australian government itself. This has nothing to do with Beijing. The Australian government Senate inquiry itself that recommended accession to the deal, emphasising that this would mean we would treat Chinese imports in for anti-dumping purposes in the exact same way we would treat American imports, European imports, Japanese ex- imports, and so on. Now, on both of those areas... China's expectations have not been matched by the Australian government. In fact, Chinese investment is not treated in the same way, nor are Chinese imports for anti-dumping purposes. So, look, we can have a a legitimate um, debate about whether the Australian government has, in fact, walked back on its promises. But again, I think it's really important that we acknowledge that China isn't just making up these um, these issues. Um, they are real issues. And if you were sitting in the Chinese embassy in, in Canberra um, or the foreign ministry in Beijing, it wouldn't be hard to form a reasonable assessment that these are genuine issues. Professor, for those of us overseas watching the previous Australian government's rhetoric and the dominant Murdoch-owned media actively whipping up the lust for war, the need for war with Australia's largest trading partner for the past three years, it's been an extended period of cognitive dissonance. How does Penny Wong and the Australian government try and normalise the broader relationship with China while simultaneously attending NATO summits, declaring China to be a threat, scaling up its involvement with the Quad, sending another Australian naval ship down the Taiwan Strait. How does that work? Yeah, look, I don't think any serious Australian commentator has criticised the Australian government for taking the China challenge seriously. Um, And there is a military element to that. Um, So no one's criticised the former government for that and for you know levelling with the Australian public that we are in a more contested space now. That's fine. But what we saw from the previous Australian government was some extraordinary language. And again, let's be clear, it was language that no one else, no other capital in the region used. For example, back in May 2020, um, sorry, April 2020, when you had the Australian Foreign Minister, the Defence the then Minister for Home Affairs, Peter Dutton, subsequently the Defence Minister, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, um, calling for an independent international inquiry into COVID-19. It wasn't just an independent call for a COVID-19 inquiry. Um, You had Dutton using the same language that was being used by Donald Trump. Um, You had the Prime Minister saying that he was advocating for weapons, for health inspectors with weapons inspector style powers to enter, to forcibly enter a country to get to the bottom of it. You had the Prime Minister proudly saying that he'd just spoken to Donald Trump um, and emphasising that we would align our efforts. Now, look, I don't know exactly what they were thinking at the time, but what I would say is if you were in the Chinese embassy in Canberra or the foreign ministry in Beijing and you were watching all that unfold, these are not peripheral figures in the Australian government. They are the key decision makers. So let's be clear what they were reacting to. Um, Penny Wong, at the time, she emphasised that the Australian government, the Morrison government, had isolated itself. I think she was right. Um, So what I would say is... The incoming government um, still is very clear-eyed about China, and so that's why I'm certainly not suggesting you're going to see any policy backflips, Um, but she's not interested in isolating Australia anymore. Um, In fact, she wants us to to move with partners, not to get ahead of ourselves, um, and to respect the capitals and the leaders of the region in which Australia occupies. Um, And that means that, of course, we're going to maintain a close relationship with Washington, but we're going to be focusing more keenly on Jakarta, Singapore, and so on. 
um, than the previous than we did under the previous government. And I, I think that's a that's a pretty useful start. It sounds like a change of government and a change of paradigm. Professor Lawrence, thank you so much for your time. Muchly appreciated. My pleasure. Well, that's all for this week's extraordinary edition of China Geopolitics. Looking to have another episode ready for you later this week in which you can bet we'll be talking about China's economic relationship with Sri Lanka, looking at the Pacific Islands Forum that's going on right now, and of course, anything else we pick up on our radar of China geopolitics around the world. You can follow the SEMP's 24-hour global coverage at scmp.com online. And if you're on Twitter, you can, of course, follow Wendy Wu and the political economy team and their work at SEMP Economy. I'm at J underscore Watt. Thank you for listening in. Take care with this new variant of Omicron getting about. Speak to you later this week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.